The Athletic. Hello everybody and welcome once again to the View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined on the pod today by Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare. Welcome both and welcome to all of you. Villa nil, Spurs 4. It looks pretty straightforward on paper. I'm not sure it was like that. Um, our producer has written here in what passes for a script by saying it was a very unspursy performance. Insofar as they managed to take advantage of the slip-ups of Manchester United and Arsenal, yes it was... But I also thought it was one of those games. I thought, please don't let me turn into the Graham Sooners of this at this whole event. But actually, a 4 0 scoreline flattered Spurs. They were lucky in some ways because, Charlie, you were there. Aston Villa utterly dominated the first half. Yeah, they did. And they had a lot of chances. And it's seven shots on target in the first half. I think it's the most Spurs have faced in the first half of a game in Premier League since. Opta started collecting that data, and it, it, it did it does give you a sense of how um, the fact that it wasn't kind of sterile domination. They were creating a lot of good chances. I mean, the, the the piece I wrote after the game, the premise was basically that this was, in so many ways, felt like a game just riddled with danger. You had the all the rivals had lost. You had the against opponent who was out of form. I mean, I think the the fan base, you know, was was almost fearing the worst with those things based on previous experience and, I, and I've said before I think there's a lot of confirmation bias with both of those tropes but um, you know there probably is some truth to that that Spurs have at times dropped points when they you know it's all there for them and and more to the point as well I think they were up against a team who were bang at it they were really up for it they were flying with the tackles I mean we'll mm. get on to the Matt Doherty injury later we'll get on to the refereeing but it was a game that n- you know, really could have done with a ref who clamped down on that earlier and put a stop to it because as it was, you know, that, that Matt Cash tackle, once that was allowed, it was basically giving them free reign to, yep, yeah, just get in at them. And I think, you know, that, that could have ruffled Spurs a lot more than it did. But, it, you know, they managed to ride that out. They rode out the fact that Villa dominated them in the first half and sucker punched them with that second goal. And then... You could feel, you know, you know, when you're at a game and you just feel the whole mood change. It was like a balloon had been pricked, and it just the whole. It was quiet from from a ground that had been really up for it. The players really up for it. The fans really up for it. That second goal was so key, and it all just after that, it was uh, plain sailing. Really, I really what do want to get on to Cash's tackle, and we'll get onto it very very soon. And I also want to, you know, change the tone of my voice. I was delighted, you know, four nil in a critical game, as every mm. game is just now. Absolutely fantastic. But but from Jack, from your watching of it, why couldn't Spurs get out of their own half in the, in that first half? They couldn't put three passes together. That's true. Um, well, I thought they were up against a pretty good team, to be honest. A team with a lot of good players. You know, I thought Ramsey was great. Coutinho was great. They really played on the front foot. Uh, I also think the way that Tottenham play is... Tottenham, Tottenham are sometimes quite happy to, to take a step back. You know, they don't. they're not a team who needs the ball all the time. That's one of their strengths. And I, so I think they're built to withstand a certain amount of pressure. I, I imagine suffering. Under, yeah. In this particular game, I think they probably took on board more pressure than they would have wanted. They conceded, they certainly conceded more chances than they would have wanted. But I think, gem, generally speaking, this is a team 
which is which is yeah, as Conte said, it's built to suffer and it is built to withstand pressure. Yeah, and uh, of course, what gets written out of history then is how you know Kane was fan. I mean, almost surreally fantastic in the second half. Um, Son was uh, incredible. Um, lots of players had good games, and nobody mentioned poor old Hugo Lloris, who actually was the reason <laughs> Spurs didn't lose the football match. In that sense, Danny, the whole ge- I thought the game was a complete vindication of that that brilliant line from Conte a few months ago, where he was talking about his his old mate um, Pantaleo Corvino, the le- uh, I think former Lecce director of football, who said something like, "You can make a mistake with your wife, but you cannot make a mistake with your goalkeeper or your centre forward." Now, given given how this game seemed to owe almost entirely to Loris at one end and then Kane and Son at the other, it felt like a complete vindication of that particular uh, maxim. I've resisted a tattoo for many decades, but that I actually might get a tattoo of that on my arm because uh, that's the most sense I've ever heard talked about life. Also, just it, it was funny that because Kulisevsky just on, that he played so well and he scored the crucial goal because he in another great line from this season in his I think one of his first time he spoke to the English media after a game he use the expression I love suffering exclamation mark well he must have he must have really enjoyed his own performance in the first half then yeah well yeah I love getting booted <laughs> in the air by Tyrone Mings um, but yeah as a sort of poster boy for enjoying the suffering that Conte wants um, it felt fitting that after that half of suffering it was him who then got that goal and what a, and a brilliant goal yeah you know, just pure clutch moment when you want a Big attacking player to step up. Great win by Kane in the build-up as well. And of course, a, a beautiful joy, given what had happened in the first half, which I am coming on to, um, but it went through Mings's legs. One can, you can hardly get more more calmer repaid in yeah. one shot than happened there. He did Mings as well for the fourth goal. Oh, the um, fourth, fourth goal, because it, because it was meaningless in, in terms of the contest, the TV commentators forgot to say that it was one of the best goals of the season in the Premier League. <laughs> they, they simply forgot the Spurs started that at their own corner flag where they, mm. they tick-attacked their way out of the corner flag and then played three or four magnificent passes before finishing it off. They, that slipped their mind in the, gen, <laughs> in the general looking at their nails and saying, oh, there's another one for Spurs, yeah. I am not one of those people who wants the game to be anodyne and without physical contact. But what happened in the first half with a tackling by Aston Villa was, I thought in the modern game, beyond the bounds of what's acceptable. I thought the tackle by Cash, it was an old-fashioned reducer meant to take his opponent down a couple of notches physically so that you know he could dominate for the rest of the game. Now, the fact that it's put Doherty out for the whole for the rest of the season... That's, I don't think Cash meant to do that, but it was an old-fashioned reducer. And the fact that the referee airily waved it on meant that uh, we had then tackles on Kulisewski, you mentioned, um, the tackle on Region. Kane later on. Am I overreacting to this, or did the referee set this up by not getting after Cash for that first tackle? Yeah, I certainly think that the referee did. As soon as they didn't book Cash, that kind of opened the floodgates to everything that came later on. But in a sense, it wasn't... The decision not to book cash was itself consistent with this something we've heard a bit we heard quite a lot of at the start of the season, which is this supposed let it flow directive. So at the start of the season, the the view was from the officials that they wanted to make football more exciting, and that meant letting the game flow, which of course me in practice means not punishing fouls, not booking for yellow card offences, not sending people off for serious foul play. Um 
with the, with the idea that this will make football better, but in, you know, arguably in practice, it makes football worse. One because it injures the players; it doesn't it doesn't protect the players, and also because I don't think it can really achieve what it what it sets out to do. So Klopp at the start of the season, Klopp spoke out about this, and he was hammered for it, if you remember. But Klopp said it's like we're going ten or fifteen years backwards. I think do you remember Harvey Elliott was back, mm. very badly injured against Leeds United at the start of the season. And my, my great friend Ken Early wrote a really interesting piece about this in the Irish Times. And he said that you, the problem is you can't, we can't just go back to how football was in 2000. Because the fact is, the game is much, much faster now. And modern players, because they grew up in an era without dangerous tackling, they don't know how to keep themselves safe and they don't know how to protect themselves. And that means that they're actually much more likely to get injured nowadays than they used to be. So this is the problem really with let it flow is your let it flow is taking a risk with the player's safety. Football fans have a lot of issues. There are so many things that you hear football fans complaining about and we complain about. I just don't know where that let it flow. I don't recall there being much of a clamour from players, from managers, from fans saying like, oh, do you know what we need? We need more sort of big, big tackles that chop people in half. I just, I just don't really remember that conversation being had. It feels like quite a weird direction to go. And 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 with Villa as well, like we we obviously can't know what Ger- exactly what Gerard said, but it oh, very I can much make a really like educated they- guess. Well, yeah. Well, and also we we do know exactly what he did say after the Arsenal game a few weeks ago when I thought his comments were a little short of disgraceful to be honest when he basically told Bukayo Saka who had had the temerity to say pretty politely by all accounts to the referee, look, I'm getting kicked every game, any chance of a bit of protection. And it's rare, obviously, that Arsenal Spurs fans are united, but I think they can be united in a bit of a frustration at this approach. And then Gerard said, you know, that's the English game, son, he'll learn. And then he'll learn and he'll learn quick. And then Gerard listed his own injuries as a sort of badge of honour in this kind of like, well, you think you've got it bad, I can't walk anymore. So as if as if that was kind of a good thing. It's like, no, that's that's everything that's been wrong with English football. This fetishization, this glorification of, of big, meaty, manly tackles. And if you don't like that, then you're not cut out for the game. And and what and sorry, just to yeah. go on, but you see this at all levels, like having played amateur football for a long, long time. It's mad. The stuff that they're hot on generally in Sunday leagues is administration it's are you wearing the right kit have you all registered your date of birth and your passports and all this sort of fiddly admin big tackles that's fine go it and I've seen people suffer really bad injuries and very rarely are the people who put in the big tackles punished and it's allowed and 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 what what really annoys me with tackles like cashes is there's an element it's bigged up as if it's manly to put in big tackles but often not going to single out cash here but I've seen a lot of tackles in games I've played in games I've watched where it's actually very cowardly because a guy is basically a sitting duck they're there they, yeah. they can't really protect they can themselves. get hurt and but you, you can't that's exactly exactly, exactly you can, right yeah. you can cut and that's exactly what the Dahoti one was like you can and I don't know cash I, don't, I can't talk about that incident but I've seen people you're a sitting duck and someone can just come in and absolutely smash you and it's not I don't think that's manly or strong it's like when people get kicked on the floor I thought that Aaron Cresswell one again and just are weird there was one the other day and Richarlison who I can I find him infuriating he does go down but Aaron Cresswell basically booted the ball from about a yard away from his face if Richarlison had moved his head he would have got kicked in the head and again he's a complete sitting duck for it 
I think that's I think that's a really awful thing to do and should have been a red card. In a way, you can understand why Gerard did it because if you can do that with impunity, why wouldn't you go around uh, if you're playing against a team that you know are a better footballing team? And you get a sense pretty early on from the referee that you're not going to get penalised for putting in meaty tackles. Why? Why wouldn't you keep doing that? Like that is, that's down to the officiating. Yeah, I complete. I definitely blame blame the referees more than I blame the individual Aston Villa players or even Stephen Gerrard himself. Players are always, always, always going to push the boundaries with this kind of thing. So it's the official. It's the official's job to officiate ultimately. Yes, I accept that, but we, people also have individual responsibility. And if, for instance, and God forbid, and I mean that, Matty Cash, for instance, was to miss the World Cup, upcoming World Cup, where he plays for Poland, of course, because somebody was to put in a tackle like that on him, he would be the first to be saying, this is a disaster for my career. Yeah, that's true. And the upshot of it is that Matt Doherty's out for the rest of the season. He'll miss the Spurs games, the run-in. He'll miss Ireland's Nations League game, I sus- late games, I suspect. And the problem Spurs have had at right and left wing back are now exaggerated. Yeah, well, I think Royale will come in. But yeah, it, it is. Um, I mean, if I say that, of course he will. There, there's no other option. And and, and I think that the um, the slight encouragement or the, what makes it slightly less bad is that we talked about this last week, that the system is king for Conte. And we saw against Newcastle that Spurs didn't have a fit uh, left wing back they were missing both of them and Doherty was able to slot in on that side and and Royale actually came in and produced one of his best performances for Spurs so I, th- I think the way Spurs are playing at the moment and it, it all looks so slick it's like this well-oiled machine I, th- I think they'll be able to cope with that absence but it's a, it's a real shame for for Spurs but also for the player because mm. he's you know having had such a difficult time of it at Tottenham for the majority of his career he comes in he's he's in such great form he looks like a man revitalized and then and then this happens so yeah i just hope he kind of is back in time to have a good pre-season and um yeah comes comes back fully fit at the start of next year and it is worth it is worth pointing out here that on this podcast we have cheered and laughed along with some of cristiano romero's tackling as have yes. spurs fans yeah yeah and you know yeah, i don't totally. think that romero i don't think that romero when he's tackling someone, thinks, "Oh God, I hope he doesn't miss. I hope he doesn't miss the next few months of football." <laughs> you know, I think it, when Tottenham play Arsenal next in on the twelfth of May, there's a fairly high chance that Romero will kick Gabriel Martinelli so hard that he lands somewhere at Bruce Grove Station. So we should, you know, I'm not saying that's bad. You know, and I love watching Romero. And if I if I was like a match going Spurs fan, I, he would be my favourite player and everything. But equally, we should, you know, people should be a little bit aware of this context. No, I do, I do think it is. Um, yeah, without getting too on our high horse, but it is a it is. I think most fans would acknowledge it is. It is a wider issue. You remember in the mid mid to late noughties, there was this sort of culture war surrounding Arsenal and Stoke, and it kind of yep. crystallised in this. Um, you know, what side of football are you on? Are you the kind of proper football man? They don't like it up them and that's what football's all about. Or are you this new school, um, let, let's protect the skillful players? And, and obviously, you know, th- this was a more of a one-off game. And I don't think we're seeing Tottenham repeatedly getting kicked. But I do think there is a wider issue when it, it, the way that things like this are talked about and whether, you know, the, the wider discourse is saying, is, is this OK? You know, I, I think a lot of Spurs fans were, were really annoyed by the commentary, which seemed to be suggesting, and this so often happens in a kind of like 
that's great to see from Cash. That's just commitment. You know, that's what we want from players. And and like you said, Daniel, I think it's a really good point. Crystal Palace, that's commit. You can be really committed yeah. without having to um, to put fouls in. And I remember a few years ago, there was a similar thing when Meza Ozil bottled a tackle in inverted commas and it caused this huge, huge furore. And I, and I wrote at the time that it was just after there was that really bad injury of Seamus Coleman caused by a pretty nasty uh, tackle by Neil Taylor. And I said how it seemed odd that Ozil bottling a challenge was getting more grief than a tackle that had put a player out for a long time. You know, it seemed to reflect the kind of weird priorities of English football. And I don't know, five years on, I don't know how much that's changed. It still feels like the the big the biggest sin you can commit as a player is, you know, things like that rather than putting in nasty tackles. The weird thing about the Let It Flow directive is that We've always we've always assumed in this country that you know European football is kind of weak, insufficiently committed, whereas English football is like tr- authentic and physical and masculine and violent. But my impression, I might be wrong on this, but my impression is that the Let It Flow directive at the start of this season was a reaction to the fact that at Euro 2020 last summer, the referees let a lot go. The refereeing was really, really, really liberal at the Euros. There were lots of games I watched where I thought, wow, like I can't believe that this is being allowed. Like and you know, stuff that would never be allowed in the Premier League was being allowed. And I think and again, this might be bollocks, but I think at the start of this season, PGMOL might have thought, you know, we can't be we can't allow European football to be more physical than good old English football than our league. And so that's why <laughs> that's why our league has has gone in this direction. That's my theory. That's interesting. We should leave this, otherwise we'll never get off the subject. But uh, I've been really interested to get your views on it because sometimes I think, because I grew up in, in an era of football where playing Charlie and uh, watching in the, in the 70s and 80s where the hurting of opponents was part of the game. Not, for, not mm. just hard tackling, but making sure that you took people out of the game. And you've only got to read some of the biographies and autobiographies of the players to understand that really was a tactical thing. Let's talk about when Spurs... Look, we all know, if you score first in the Premier League, you're unlikely to lose the match. Very unlikely, statistically. Um, If you score in the first minute of both halves, then you're really in business. Second half, Spurs completely different in some ways. They, they, They managed to get control. After the second goal, they got control of the ball. And once again, we saw Conte's system squeezing the life out of out of Aston Villa in a complete contrast to the first half. Yeah, and I do think as well there is an extent to which they... And you, you did get this sense watching it whether they would slightly run out of puff. I mean, they put in... Villa put in so much to that first half. And, and it's one thing if you put in lows to a half and you get a reward. But I do think they were so... Because you, you spoke about Spurs couldn't get out. But they couldn't get out partly because Villa's pressing was really, really impressive. Yeah. Like they were just, they were all over the pitch. Like they were just, they were first to lose balls, and and, and that's what we should say. You know, we talked about the bad tackles. Yeah. They they did also do some of the the Crystal Palace thing people, you were describing. People like McGinn of, were really, really ferocious. Yeah, yeah, down, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't all big tackles. You know, they did some really good work. And but but I do think as well. And and I was thinking about this because. Spurs a few times have been have produced much better second half performances. I mean, in their last two games, I was thinking they've scored seven second half goals, and part of that is, is I, I do think, is just the simple fact that they are so so fit and they back themselves. And I know Conte has been set, you know, emphasizing to the players, you know, Premier League games, the importance of late goals, and you know, the, the league of late goals, and all of that sort of thing. And we saw that against Leicester, but you know, he really does 
back his team um, to get stronger as the games go on. And you saw that happen. I mean, they were <laughs> they were kind of like a boxer um, villa who'd thrown some big punches, hadn't really landed, and then were just flagging and were sort of there for the taking in that second half. And and they do. Spurs do trust that system, absolutely. And and again, we spoke about this in the context of Bielsa and, and Jack referred to it with, with Guardiola. And, you know, there were a lot of people saying to Antonio Conte, you don't have the personnel to play this system. Why why are you so wedded? Why are you so dogmatic, evangelical about three at the back? Well, he'd probably say, well, look at it now. The reason I, I wasn't playing this system to make a point. I was playing the system because I believe it's the best way to win matches. And I really back myself with this system and to get players so familiar with it that things become very automatic and I trust that it will beat most other team systems and, and we are seeing that now as you say they, Villa just couldn't really deal with it in the second half and those spaces began to open up well uh, we should talk then about something that's almost indif- difficult to find words for because you find yourself repeating yourself but you two are extraordinarily well paid to manipulate the English language so I trust you'll help me with this um, Kane and Son. We'll get onto the numbers they're, t- they're they're running up now. Extraordinary. Kane, you think you've seen everything. You think he can't go on doing new things. Mm. The two flick on headers. They were amazing assists. And a new almost Kane's like, right, this week I'm going to do this. Yeah. What's so amazing about him is that I think you know, like a, like a lot of people listening to this podcast, I would have seen. So Kane's played. I looked it up earlier. Kane's played about 380 games for Tottenham. I think I will have either watched on TV or been at almost all of mm. them. And then about 70 or 80 games for England, which I would have been at, I think, almost all of them. You know, so that's what, five, the best part of 500 games that I've watched Kane play? Mm-hmm. I never, he does, he still does, he still has the capacity to do things I've never seen him do before. It's it's unbelievable. Like, so Phil Foden, so Phil Foden, he's 21 years old and he does, every time you watch him play, he'll, he'll, you'll see something that he's you've never seen him do before and you think, wow, this kid's amazing. But Kane's, what, 28 and he still has that capacity to surprise you as a viewer fan journalist whatever and that's unbelievable like that that, mm. that little flick header over his left shoulder is so good i've watched it like like a, a lot of people on twitter i've watched it about a million times since saturday evening and it just gets better and better and better i've never seen i don't think anyone else it's not even just i've not seen kane do it no i don't think i've seen anyone else do it well, the ball isn't played up like that in, in the game uh, anymore. But even so, for him to decide that this week we're not going to do raking crossfield through balls, but we're going to do flick. I'm going to practice my flicked headers, um, you know, for, for, the, mm. for the upcoming World Cup, whatever reason he's doing it. Oh, of course, what it is is just the way the game went. The look to see where Son is yeah. and then to place it into his path. It was murder, wasn't it? Yeah, the spatial awareness is unreal. He's like a bat. He's like a batsman playing T20 who is inventing new shots, even though the game's been played for 200 years. The spatial awareness, and Danny, you say there about the kind of in the split second making those calculations is interesting because it reminds me, and Spurs fans might want to hear, might not want to hear this person's name, but it's not a bad person to be compared to. I think it's the best headed assist since Dennis Bergkamp for Patrick Cliver at the 98 World Cup, which if you remember, it's a fizzed ball and Bergkamp sort of falls really low, crouches and heads it in the same way that, in a similar way to what Kane does, right into Clivert's path. And Bergkamp, talks about that assist a lot in his book which is a kind of hilariously cerebral in-depth discussion of football but I think Kane has a lot of a lot of what Bergkamp talks is about 
things not being flashy and things being done things might look spectacular but they're being done because in the split second you calculate well this is the best way to get from yeah, it's to the B. Optimum. and i think that's kane, exactly that totally and i think kane has a lot of that and he is similarly able to make those split second calculations and that might then lead to him doing something that looks totally extraordinary and spectacular but he's not doing it for that reason it's just that this is how i can hit that space and you'll see that with some of the passes he plays which look hollywood or out of this world but they are just a simple calculation right that's where i need to get the ball to put son uh in on goal and it's and it's just amazing to watch look my my instinct is not to overanalyze these things but just enjoy them while they're happening because they don't go on forever but we are jack um with these two up front and kulisevsky of course has added a, a dimension that makes them even harder to deal with we are just watching something quite beautiful at the moment yeah, yeah, we are. And it's, uh, I think when you're living in a kind of purple patch like this, you have to tell yourself at the time that that, that 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 is exactly what you're living through. Because like you say, it won't last forever. You know, these two guys won't play for Tottenham forever. They won't be this good forever. You know, Son is a, what, Son turns 30 this year? Son is a very, Son is a very pace, pace. He's a, he's a player who relies on his speed and his athleticism. And, you know, anyone who watches football knows that doesn't last forever. Strikers are continuing to be much better through their 30s than they used to be. But they have to adapt their games a bit, and like we don't know, we Son is not going to be the same player at thirty five as he is now. Like we can say, even Jamie Vardy, look, Vardy's having a great, Vardy's had a great time at Leicester, but clearly he's slowing down. He's lost a bit of his pace. He's now what thirty five, thirty six, Vardy, uh, and I imagine the same thing will happen to Son at some point. You know, at the end of this contract or beyond. So yeah, we cert- people certainly should enjoy it now. I'm just really interested by this story, Charlie's comparison of. Kane and Bergkamp it's not really something that you hear that much people generally try and root him within English football whether it's Shearer Sharing and Mulrooney they're the three names you most hear but there is a lot you know there is a lot that is Bergkampy about about some of about some of what he does and I think specifically speaking to what Charlie said the imagination and audacity more than anything else like the ability to to conceive of ideas on the pitch that other players wouldn't just wouldn't think of, and the technical skill to execute them is indeed very Bergkampy. It's probably more Bergkampy than it is sharing of Shiro Rooney. And and also what's now sort of warming to this theme because Bergkamp started out more as a number nine. He he was very good at Ajax. He could run in behind defenses and score in a similar way to Kane. Not searing pace, but very intelligent and hard running. And then obviously Bergkamp drop deeper and in England we only really know him as as that number 10 more of what now now Kane's doing but he also could still run in behind it and the expression wasn't invented then but you know when he arrived he probably was more of a nine and a half but yeah it's, it, it is interesting because and, and I guess because he's so synonymous with Arsenal it's not someone that would would naturally come to mind or would necessarily want to come to mind but he's as I mean he is a <laughs> a good person to be yeah. compared to both player neither of those two players averse to throwing the odd sneaky elbow either. yeah two yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. two pretty snide players when they needed to be that's a really good comparison can i just chuck my little trivia question at you guys by the way oh, oh come please on. do i'll say uh, so j- this speaks to danny you were just saying about the free scoring uh hmm. spurs yeah. under conte and th- this was actually before the weekend in um because they've now played 21 under conte but in mm-hmm. Spurs' first 20 Premier League matches under Conte, they scored 43 goals. And that tally is bettered in their first 20 uh, Premier League matches by only two managers taking over at new clubs. Name those two managers and clubs. 
you can have there are two answers so let's say you get two guesses each and this is Premier League or beyond? Premier League. Uh, yeah, right, Premier okay. League. So scored more than 43 goals in their first 20 games at a club as a manager. Well, I mean, I have no idea, but all questions like this always end up with one of them must be one of Mourinho's teams. Good shout, but no. I'm going to guess, what about, I mean, what, how about Guardiola at City? No. Oh, wow. Hmm. This is a very difficult question then. What about Ancelotti at Chelsea? Is one of them. Correct. Well, very, very good, Jack. Very, very good. And there's one other. So Ancelotti's Chelsea in 2009 got 45 goals in the first 20. The other one got 57 in their first 20. These silences are very good on podcasts. Hmm. I haven't got a clue. Who was scoring that freely? Come on, Jack. I'm utterly reliant on you here. That's almost three goals a game in their first 20 matches. Put us out of our... I was tempted to say, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of teams that just started like an absolute train. But it's hard because that's actually quite an extended span. It's not like Scolari's Chelsea started quite well, but not for 20 games. Not that well. Um... He was more or less sacked after twenty games. Yeah, he was sacked in what March? Is it, an, is so it another Manchester? Is it a Manchester City ja- manager? Yeah, January, February. Yes, Danny, it is. Oh, uh, because they, they, they've had some extraordinary um, takeoffs. So it must be the uh, oh Pellegrini. Um, Pellegrini, thank you. Yeah, because yeah, they, yeah. they had an amazing run at the start of the season, didn't they? When they absolutely because that was when they everybody. took it. They put six past Spurs, six past yeah. Arsenal. They were. Absolutely banging them in. Yeah. So there you go. Well, Pellegrini was kind of lucky because he, sorry, I, this is probably no interest to the listeners of the pod, but I think Pellegrini, right, Pellegrini was basically the right man in the right place at the right time in the sense that he arrived in after Mancini was sacked in 2013. Mancini, like the players were completely sick of Mancini and they were very happy to just play for somebody who would just let them play more or less. Plus, he really got that team at their physical peak. Aguero, mm. Silva, Yaya, Zabaleta, Company, all those guys were at their physical peak at that point. So and they had and they still had Nazari, who was sensational. So yeah. this is probably this is not maybe not one for the Spurs listeners, but that's my take on it. Well no, it's it was good it was good to remember that our, you know, teams can score at enormous rates in the Premier League. Very different systems we're talking about here. Listen, the we'll have a break in a second, but first we should talk about the turnaround in the race for the top four. Now, no one is getting out the flags. No one is getting out the bunting. Nobody is booking the open top buses yet. But in the past several weeks, I think about six, because I keep an eye on these things. I don't, I'm not a betting man myself, but I'm very interested in the odds in things because I think it reflects a way of looking at, at the world. Spurs have gone from double figures against... To two to one on now to finish in the Champions League places. Manchester United's defeat of the weekend means that they're now in double figures and significant double figures, almost twenty to one. Uh, to, and Arsenal are now two to one against. What's happened? If we put that into layman's terms, Charlie, what I what I've been saying for several weeks is that Spurs had, as they went into the last batch of fixtures, had absolutely no uh, wriggle room. They still have that very difficult fixture at Anfield, and they won't win all the games that they've got in, in front of me here on the screen. But it's now Arsenal who have no wriggle room. They have to mm. keep, keep doing well and they may well have to win the, the North London derby as well away from home. Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge turnaround. I mean, it's crazy because this time 
last week, as we recall Monday morning, we didn't know about the Tierney injury, the Partey injury was still to come, and Arsenal hadn't played that Crystal Palace game. So it's still... Um, it still felt like it was in their hands, but they, they've had an absolutely catastrophic week. I mean, I think people who don't watch Arsenal every week won't realise just how important Partey is to that team. I mean, he re- losing him really is massive. And I think, you know, based on drop-off to their replacement, Tierney is probably the second player they'd least like to lose, Partey being the first. And they've lost two games. Um, so it's suddenly looking... Pretty desperate for them. I think I think Spurs do have some wiggle room now because I, I just I don't th- Arsenal also have hard games. I mean Southampton away, Chelsea away, United home, West Ham away are the next four. I, I think Sky may end up ruining moving that North London Derby quite so late. I, I I quite fancy Spurs to have a pretty healthy lead. And yes, I know I'm sure people will be screaming, listening to this, saying, It's Spurs, you know, of course we'll find a way to mess it up. Maybe that's true. I'm just saying what I think will happen from here on the in. The scars of Burnley and Southampton go pretty deep. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And of previous seasons. I, sure. I totally get that. But I think if you strip away the fan anxiety, I think just rationally looking at it, all the momentum is with Tottenham. Arsenal, you know, they've relied on having a, a, a very thin squad. And, and I think they... I said this last week, actually, even before on Monday before the Palace game, that Spurs' results were big wins. Arsenal's were all narrow wins and they're playing with a striker who doesn't score. And I questioned how sustainable that was. And I don't think it is very. And, you know, I think you know, losing Aubameyang when they did and not being able to get in a replacement was, was huge for them. And Spurs just look so on it at the moment. I, I, I think they'll, they'll build their lead... And they're far more likely to build their lead than Arsenal were to, um, and I know you know, I know Arsenal have that game in hand. But that game in hand is Chelsea away. So yeah, it's it's all flipped. And and I guess by that logic, in a week's time, maybe we're sitting here saying, yeah. "Oh my God, Arsenal are back at it," and Spers have dropped yeah. There are going to be a lot, a lot of, it, a lot it, of things that happen. happen. Yeah, of course. All right, so let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about your Charlie um, interview with Christian Romero. By no means the most uh, overcommitted player on the pitch at the weekend. It is an award that he doesn't often win. And we'll talk about uh, pizza because we've had a huge response to your pizza recommendations, Jack, uh, over the last few days online. And we'll talk about Harry Kane uh, making a Neymar-like dash immediately after a football match <laughs> to go and attend the Masters as opposed to his sister uh, dancing at a carnival. All that's coming up next on The View from the Lane. Yeah, welcome back. You're listening to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pittsbrook are alongside me today, thankfully. Um, and Charlie, you've had uh, the chance to interview a player who's fast establishing himself as a fan favourite, a cult favourite indeed, in Christian Romero. What were the circumstances? Did you do it in person? Yeah, it was in person at the training ground back end of last week. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, it was, his, it was his first interview since joining the club. And obviously, there's so much interest in him. And just so much intrigue. I mean, to meet someone who on the pitch is is as he is, you know, I, I wasn't exactly expecting him to come in and two-foot me on arrival, but you're, you're still thinking like, what's this guy? Gonna, you know, and I knew a fair amount about his, um, you know, the fact that he is uh, you know, pretty quiet off the pitch mm-hmm. and, and unassuming, but he does. I, I felt he had that aura that a lot of top athletes have that, you know, without having to be especially vocal 
he had a there was a presence to him. Just for my interest, did did you do it through an interpreter? We did, yeah. So he 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 spoke Spanish and you presume he Latin, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I, I I was pushing to do it in Latin or ancient Greek, and <laughs> yeah. my uh, my response fell on deaf ears, unfortunately. So he did it. He did it. He did it with an interpreter. Yeah. Yeah. His uh, his English is fairly basic. He's we talked about it in the interview. You know, he's he's learning, um, and he feels it's getting better. And he did talk about how at school he now really regrets not paying attention in English classes. But his logic was, well, I'm never going to leave Argentina. What's the point? And it, yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, we. We covered a lot of ground. Talked about how he's settling into London. He had a kid uh, at the end of uh, at the end of last year, and it was sweet talking about that again. You know the contrast between him getting kind of dewy eyed talking about his young boy and the challenges of being a dad when we're used to seeing him. You know, yeah, putting in pretty meaty tackles on opposition centre forwards. And yeah, about learning a new position under Conte in a way. He was really, really positive about Kudasevsky. He said he's one of the things that's really surprised him is how good Kudasevsky's been and how quickly he's settled and given them another dimension. It's very complimentary about Eric Dyer, about how he's he helped, he really helped Romero settle when he arrived. Obviously they can speak Spanish to each other and Dyer really, you know, made sure he was integrated in the group. When I read that, I mean, of course, I speak as someone who is unilingual. I, I thought, hang on, wasn't Dyer brought up in Portugal? Why is he suddenly fluent in Spanish? Um, yeah, Dyer other... taught himself Spanish when um, during the Pochettino era. Madre mia! Yeah, and that was a big <laughs> deal when it comes to so all of Tottenham's Spanish and Argent, you know, Spanish-speaking and Argentine players they've had in recent years. Dyer has been very matey with them. Uh, I interviewed him about this a year or two ago, and he was saying he'd just been back, he'd just come back from some holiday in the summer of 2020 in Sardinia with like Lamella, Foyth, Davinson, Lacelso, Lacelso, those guys, yeah. and was really, really good mates with with that group. And I think Dyer's capacity to speak English, Spanish, and Portuguese is one of the reasons why really he's the kind of dressing room glue and I probably more than probably more than anyone else to be honest and keeps you know his friends with all the different groups language speaking groups within the, within the, within the club and and of course those sort of the sorts of things that um you you uncovered it with your interview that rem- often remain hidden to ordinary supporters why some player rather than another is more important to the dressing room and things like that of course go a long long mm. long way he also spoke about the incident um where for where he stood over Harry Maguire and gave him um, plenty. What did he have to say about yeah. that, Charlie? Well, yeah, I was asking him about um, getting the balance right between, you know, being very physical, being very aggressive. Which he, I also asked him about where that came from, and he said that's sort of always something he's had since he was a kid growing up in Argentina. That Argentinian defenders, he said, are always encouraged to play that way. But yeah, I said about you know overstepping the mark and whether Maguire was an example of that, and he. He basically said that, and I'm sure people have their own interpretation of this, that it was a little bit, uh, it was a bit misleading some of the pictures, the images that went around after. He said those things happen in the heat of battle. He's got a lot of respect for Harry Maguire, always respects his opponents, and it was much ado about nothing, really. So I'm just writing this to always respect his opponents. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've got that, Christian. Well done. I've got that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think from his point of view, he saw it as just uh, all's fair enough and war, and that these things happen, no big deal, and we move on. I mean, he he's not really done anything since then, has he? So no. I don't know if um, if he's kind of reined it in a bit. Uh, but it's I always think it's interesting with these players 
and again it's a bit of an old-fashioned english trope and it used to wind me up a bit when it was like but you know you take away his right to do that and he wouldn't be the same player and i think often it's a bit like maybe if he stopped fouling people he'd be better but it is interesting in romero's case because i do think that and i talked about it the kind of slightly unhinged aggression we see that simmering menace i do think helps in kind of terrifying opponents and as long as he keeps enough of a lid on it so he's not getting sent off does kind of help spurs i think jack was right to point out you can't be celebrating uh, sorry denigrating and uh, condemning matty cash's tackle and then go around saying, ah, but what about when Christian goes through the back of somebody? And we won't do that. I actually think but- you can. I think you can. I think I think people people think that you can't be a hypocrite, but you can. Everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone's a hypocrite all the time. It's all we do in life is be hypocrites. So it's fine. What an it's extraordinary outburst. Fi- it's completely fine <laughs> to love Christian Romero and have a shirt with Romero's name on and have your Twitter set to like Romero season or whatever and celebrate <laughs> Romero's aggressive style of play and also be pissed off at cash. It's fine. Being a hypocrite is fine. This is one of my big things. It really winds me up when people think that... Is it because you are uh, yourself a tremendous hypocrite? Yeah, every, everyone is, Danny. Everyone is. Most people are. I mean, try being a parent. It's impossible. Go on. You, you cannot parent without being a hypocrite. And I, rem- I remember saying this to my dad when I would have been about four that or five. That big old like, hypocrite, you, yeah. <laughs> famously William Eccleshare the hypocrite but no he was doing that and I was like but he was telling me not to do something I was like yeah but you do that it's not fair I was like yeah I was like you're a hypocrite I was like yeah, yeah. And are you, I, harsh lesson to learn I hope you're, 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 you're either planning or practicing this kind of parenting yourself very much so I am yeah Sorry, Jack, you're about to about to nail me to a cross. Go on. Yeah, well, it's fine to love Romero and be pissed off with Cash's tackle on Doherty because it, all I'm saying is just be aware that they, you know, they're not radically different things. But it, at least in the in the closed system, as heating engineers would call it, of Twitter, all people try and do now is to you have an opinion about a record about pizza. Uh, restaurant or about a footballer and all they try and do is to find somewhere where you've expressed a slightly opposite opinion and then you are decried as a hypocrite and then none of your opinions are ever allowed to stand ever again because you are quote a hypocrite but that but that's precisely the argument i'm making danny is that the world is so full of like bullshit bad faith hypocrisy gotchas yeah that it's you just shouldn't play their game don't play their game Right. Uh, I'm, uh, for now, thank you for that. You have set me philosophically free and it's taken you 64 podcasts, but I'm glad that you've done it. Let's move on to then, um, th- and thank you for the interview with Christian Romero, because even though we all know these formal interviews are both unusual situations and you're doing it through through two languages, we don't have really have any other way of getting to know the players these days. So I was re- very grateful for that, Charlie. Let's move on to the fact that Harry Kane within apparently... Uh, a few Concord hours of um, perfecting his new headed through ball was seen um, at the Masters. Uh, can we just say, first of all, I mean, Harry, of course, is a very clean cut kid. And of course, he's going to turn up at the Masters. If you gave him a choice of a million things you could do with his time, being at the last nine holes of the Masters would be one of those. I mean, I have to say, I've got to be, I've got to be, Cruel here, some some of my colleagues. Um, on Friday, I was doing a task that was pretty repetitive, though enjoyable. I was filing some records, and I mean a lot of records. But so I had the the golf on in the background, and so I was getting essentially the TV commentary without the visuals. I must say, in the end, I turned it off 
because some men who shall remain nameless, and they were men, were repeating on a loop how beautiful the course is, how amazing it is just to see Tiger Woods hobbling around a golf course, and how old they both were. And they, they were virtually saying, I can remember when all this around here was fields. It was nauseating. Um, <laughs> and I wonder whether Sky have got it in their heads that the Masters is one of those things that is of global importance. It's a, quite an important golf tournament, a sport that some people follow <laughs> fetishistically. But compared to, say, Norwich against Burnley yesterday, it barely, it barely registers with me. Have well, we I got this wrong? Well, it's or am I very, It's very popular with people that like golf. I mean, I'm yeah. not into golf, so I can't. I've got nothing. I don't watch it. I've got nothing to add. Am I right in thinking that they have a putting green, the training ground for Harry? He's so mad on golf. You've been there, Charlie. There is a putting the- green, isn't there, on the right hand side as you go towards the the is media there? entrance? I've never noticed that. Wow, yeah, there I, used to be a little see, bit my, of... My golf radar is terrible. I don't know if it's still to... there. It certainly used to be there. I think, I'm sure it's on the right-hand side as you go up towards the media entrance. And, and finally, um, last week we talked about the best places to get a pizza before or after a game. And Jack, this was your particular speciality. And it's uh, gone rampant. Um, uh, viral, as I understand that dark kids might say. Um, with people asking, A, to repeat your recommendations, and B, giving us further and widening recommendations for pizza restaurants in the North London area. Yeah, so when I said I was narrow-minded, I meant in the sense that I like a small number of things an awful lot, but pizza is one of them. So I've been very encouraged by the number of responses we've had on this over the course of the last week. Lots and lots of people recommended lots and lots of places. I'm going to mention a few. Vicoli di Napoli on Church Street in Stokey came up, a place called Loven, L-O-V-E-N, on Industrial Park, kind of near the sort of marshes, halfway between Tottenham Hill and Northumberland Park. Mm -hmm. But the two places, Danny, that came through the most, which got lots of recommendations from lots of listeners and readers. Number one, San Marco, which is right by Bruce Grove Station, uh, where I think I have been before and is really nice. And it's obviously very easy to get to the ground from there. And the other is a place I hadn't heard of called True Craft, Wow. On West Green Road, just around the corner from Seven Sisters Station, which, judging by the responses we've had, is actually now very popular with Tottenham fans before or after games. So I would certainly suggest that either of those would be very good options before or after going to a game at Tottenham Hotspur And Stadium. remind us again what the two that you um, were talking about, because I've had a, well, at least one person on Twitter who's coming from Italy to try these out, wow. and he wanted to confirm the two that you were particularly recommending. So the two that we mentioned last time, Danny, one was uh, Papagoni's, uh, which is on Stroud Green Road, nearest tube station, Finsbury Park, uh, easy enough to get a bus from there up to Tottenham. The other is a place called Sacro Cuore, which is in Crouch End, which you can also quite easily get. I think it's a W3 bus from there to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I wonder how many people were sat there um, listening to our voice, because of course, over a million listeners now to the podcast. How many of those million were sitting there going, I'm not giving out my recommendation. I won't ever get a seat there again. I know I was. Um, listen, thank you both very, very much indeed. Thank you all for listening to us. And as I always say, let's not forget that if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, that you can sign up right now to read all of our articles on Spurs, including, of course, Charlie's interview with Christian Romero and a ton of other stuff. You'll also have access to everything else on the site. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. We're back on Thursday. Much more to talk about. Thank you for listening. The Athletic.